this year, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. Pair your impressive skills with our advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So Lana Del Rey has a new album out. It's called Did You Know That There's a Tunnel Under Ocean Boulevard? It's a really strong album, and to talk about it and to also go back through Lana's entire discography and some of her controversies along the way, I have our old friends Brittany Spanos and Rob Sheffield. And we'll start with the new album. Brittany, you wrote a great review of it, and Rob, you like it too, I understand. Yeah, it's great. I love Brittany's review is so brilliant, and I really love how you handled the gigantic elephant in the room that is Norman fucking Rockwell, and how it's just, it's a masterpiece that's untoppable, and it looms over everything, but it's not a reason to underrate this record at all. Yeah, I feel like Norman set a new tone for Lana musically, like it was almost like a reset button in her own career, in her songwriting, and that's part of what makes it so brilliant and surprising and all of that. I've seen a lot of reviews and comments and everything from people trying to compare the two and trying to think of the idea of, are any of her albums going to top that? And sometimes it's just okay for that album to exist as this really great epoch in her career that set a tone. I love Chemtrails, I love Blue Bannisters. Those are albums that I've grown to love more and more since they've come out, especially Blue Bannisters. I feel like I returned to a lot more than I thought I would when it first came out. And I feel like Ocean Boulevard is the same way where it would not exists without Norman and is here because of it and is an extension of it. She's referencing it so much on this album. There's lines and samples from songs on Norman fucking Rockwell. <laughs> and it's She understands how that kind of set a tone and this album would not exist without that allowing her that songwriting freedom to experiment and be weird, be as weird as she wants to be, which is what we want from Lana. And I love when she's on her real weird shit and she is on it on this one. And wow. Perfect. She did a weird thing with the two albums in between Norman fucking Rockwell and this one, which is she released them in very short succession, one in March of 2021 and the other one in October. So it was a lot of music to wrap one's head around quality aside. So I think that's maybe why you're still grappling with those two albums. Yeah, and they weren't like she didn't really do a lot for them. They just felt like really good sort of artistic statements. They felt very COVID era kind of isolation type of reflections. And this feels a little bit a little bit bigger. And it was definitely a much bigger album in terms of the collaborators that she brings on to it, the production on it. It does feel like a, a much like bigger production and release. To take a step back for a minute, one thing that really interests me about Lana Del Rey, one thing that really confounds me about her is that people still see her as a pop star. They call her a pop star and they think she's making pop music. That seems like a real stretch. I think I think it's great that sort of tricks people who see themselves as pop fans into listening to this very all very weird singer-songwriter music that to me isn't has very little weirdly at the same time it's influenced pop over the last decade, but really to call what she's been doing pop seems like a real stretch in a really interesting way. So it, that inclusion of her in that category is really interesting to me and paradoxical. I feel like she straddles the line of it. You think of a song like Peppers. Angelina Jolie, hands on your knees. Angelina Jolie, let me put my hands on your 
was just such a great pop moment for Lana. And then you think of the fact that so much of this album is very folk influenced and classically Americana singer songwritery. But yeah, I don't think she she never really even in sort of her peak kind of early days of presenting herself as a lot more so of a pop star. She wasn't really making traditional pop music at that time. She's always been a little bit on the outskirts of it and a little bit. Her presentation has always been unique. I think she is a pop fan and I think she enjoys. She is someone who seems to consume a lot of like all kinds of music, even just thinking of the features on the album, which are pretty much like straightforward samples of other people's songs and music. Like she's such a omnivorous music listener so i think she really cares about pop music and pop presentation in some ways but yeah she's always done it in a way that's been on the outskirts of what we even consider to be pop music and reinvented it like i I think that's so much of her presentation from born to die and ultraviolence like really reinvented the idea of new style of pop music a new style of pop presentation that like moodier presentation of herself and yeah i think she coexists in both worlds but more traditionally i think she's focused on a lot more like folk music and 70s 60s rock yeah i think that's the canon she's in in a lot of ways although like you said she does draw on a lot of different music i guess what i'm fixated on is that is that she really is this total musical weirdo in the best way who's convinced people that she's a lot more mainstream than she actually is because she wears nice dresses and because she's very glamorous kind of just trick people into putting her into a category that she really isn't in. I don't know how Rob sees it. I don't see what she's doing as separate from pop music. She's certainly a very weird and ambitious pop mastermind, but most pop masterminds are. I think she's she's certainly working within a pop framework in a really brilliant way. I guess my counterpoint would be is that she hasn't actually had a hit in a decade. She's not a chart pop artist. She reminds me in the 90s sense, and that's always how I saw her, as someone who brings in music from the edges into the mainstream. I just see her outside of the continuum, both outside of the continuum of mainstream pop and also heavily influencing it. I mean, Lord, Billie Eilish, I feel like in a lot of ways she paved the way for them. Where else do you see her influence, Brittany? She created like a whole aesthetic movement. And in culture and music, it's kind of wild and surreal to see when you open TikTok or Instagram, how many really young kids are still emulating what Lana was doing with, with Born to Die era with video games. She created something, a complete sort of this like coquette type of like cherry emoji Twitter like mm. aesthetic that is still reigning supreme. Like it's really wild how influential that's been. And musically, I think there is this, uh, the kind of like dark femme energy of a lot of her earlier stuff, especially. It's still part of her music now, but I think was a little bit presented with a little bit, depending on how you read the music, either with a lot of irony or with no irony, <laughs> like depending on how you listen to her early music. I think that is again so much of pop music so many artists have really attempted that I mean, you listen to olivia rodrigo you listen to billy you listen to lord like you mentioned i hear it in pretty much any sort of the indie singer songwriters now her fusion of trap beats with this melancholy anachronistic jazzy 70s lounge singer vibe is still very prevalent i could see her influence i can hear her influence in a lot of what soundcloud rap was a few years ago it's just it's all over i guess to flip on my own point the other way you could see it is that she presaged a decade in which pop itself would become somewhat more of it or quote-unquote pop 
would become more of a niche compared to hip-hop, which actually took over the charts. I've spoken with Jack Antonoff about this idea of, of alt-pop and taking the values, which is what he does, taking the values of 90s alternative rock and putting them into pop. I think there's a lot going on there that's really interesting. But back to this album, Rob, what are your favorite tracks? Speaking of Jack Antonoff, I really love Margaret. Yeah. I love how, as Brittany said, it's in the great tradition of Jack Antonoff pop <laughs> girls deciding to be so moved by his current girlfriend that they're going to do a song <laughs> where it's actually describing where she is in the room. It, it's funny that also I love how she got Jack Antonoff to do more singing on this song than Lana did on her official Taylor duet. <laughs> Um, but it's, it's very much her answer to New Year's Day. And Brian, this kind of goes in with the sort of broader question. Historically, you were asking about her before, because in addition to everything else, Lana is, she was one of the first big pop singer-songwriters in the wake of Taylor Swift. And at a time when people on the pop level were really slow to pick up on the innovations that Taylor was bringing on albums like Fearless and especially Speak Now. Lana was one of the first major talents to just take off from that and just learn from the innovations that Taylor was doing. Taylor was so ahead of of everybody else at that time, and Lana was somebody who was certainly picking up on those innovations. So it's funny to see these sort of the back and forths between those two careers, but the fact that she's got this answer to New Year's Day, like right in the album, it's sweet. And it's also, it's very funny. And also I like what she wrote. It was like a really funny sad song about being in the proximity of their happy relationship. I think one could definitely write a PhD thesis on the treatment of Americana imagery and ideas in the in the work of Taylor Swift versus Lana Del Rey. Yeah. It's super interesting. And I mean, but, I think they also yeah. fed into each other too. Like you think of a song like Wildest Dreams and how Lana that is before even Jack and Lana linked up. And like, how is, was that sort of connection? Like it feels like they have been in a on a similar trajectory in their careers and seeing each other throughout. Thinking of the fact that Norman, Folklore, Evermore, all that sort of came out within a year of each other. Those feel very much in the same kind of musical mindset universe and just seems like they have been on similar wavelengths for a long time. There should be a track on this album, though, that is a supposed Taylor feature that even goes further and there's just not a hint of her. (laughs) But uh, yeah, Margaret is amazing. And those are actually some of my favorite Antonoff vocals ever. He really sounds like Bruce (laughs) for the first time in vocals. (laughs) Bruce, of course, is a fan. That would... That duet needs they to happen. They should re-release it that with be, Bruce. I think sick. that would be really fun. As much of a Bruce fan as Jack Antonoff is, replacing his own vocals with Bruce Springsteen on a song about his own fiance seems like a bit much. Uh, <laughs> slight insult, but... I love that. But also, something I love about Margaret is that, for me, Norman, which is one of the great albums of modern times, and for me, it's so associated with the same fall of 2019 that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out, mm-hmm. and... There's such very linked, for me, views of L.A. and L.A. mythology and Hollywood is the place where America goes to die and watch all its dreams die. And there's so much about those two masterpieces that are so linked for me. And (laughs) so for Margaret, of course, Margaret Qualley is so brilliant in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as the incredibly scary Manson family, Mm -hmm. basically like Brad Pitt, Hitchhiker. There's something just, I love that sort of, franchise connection to having Margaret Qualley on this album as well. 
I just love that. Brilliant. My final Springsteen reference of the <laughs> episode is that the two works of art from that period that Bruce specifically shouted out were Norman fucking Rockwell, which was great to hear him. He mentioned on his radio show and to hear him say that in his voice was amazing. <laughs> just to hear him say those words was amazing. <laughs> and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he was a big fan of. He's right there the, with the you, Bruce Rob. Bruce remix of Margaret. It's not that far off. I think we're almost there. <laughs> also, speaking of Rolling Stone music now, bingo. There is a Chili Peppers reference on the album, which was really important to me. Like, <laughs> Honestly, it would be a great collaboration. I feel like that's <laughs> also very bound to happen, is for Shantae part on a, on a Lana song. I think it's honestly kind of insane it hasn't happened yet. I feel like Ultraviolence <laughs> would have been the album where we would have gotten it, but I think we're still due for that. But I'm very, stop me in my tracks. I was very excited. <laughs> <laughs> on Peppers. <laughs> yeah, so yep, me and my boyfriend song. listened to the Chili Peppers. <laughs> What does hands on your knees, I'm Angelina Jolie, mean? <laughs> on that song. What doesn't it mean? I'm serious. What is. <laughs> no, literally, what is. <laughs> I'm... It's very catchy, but what the fuck does it mean? I don't know, but it's fun. Talking about that song is a good moment to bring up. Uh, Lana's addiction to being problematic, <laughs> where she knows that people have an idea, real or false, that she's a COVID minimizer because she wore a mask that had mesh in it, although apparently it may have been fake mesh that was covered with plastic underneath, but it created this impression. As with all things with her, who knows, but she had that, my boyfriend tested positive for COVID, it don't matter line, just I think to fuck with people, <laughs> just because they know that that's what they think of her. I think she loves being seen as problematic. I, mean, I like think she fun, enjoys it. That's such a fun line. Just the, it's such like it a is. peak, like, again, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of references. I feel like the album itself feels so self-referential for obvious reasons. Yes. It's, about her, it's, her, it's about her personal history. It's about her family. It's about growing up. She's kind of weaving together the story of her life across it. But it's also happening with the music, too, of course, with all of the kind of sonic references, the samples, all of that. But that line is su such a born to die line. Like, <laughs> and it's, it's just so funny because it's just like, we are, we're already making out. So I guess I just have what he has. It's like such a peak Lana kind of love song line. I really liked track 11, which I mentioned on Twitter, I accidentally listened to like four times in a row. <laughs> I was just vibing out to it and then I realized I had it on repeat. The almost Fiona Apple worthy yeah. title, Grandfather, Please Stand on the Shoulders of My Father While He's Deep Sea Fishing. Really mesmerizing, beautiful song that also is super self-referential. That one's so beautiful. I, it's like there's so much about on this album that's just about grief and about family. And I think that one is such a beautiful ode to her grandpa, to her dad, to just the idea of this, like the memories and kind of the people in your life carrying those who are still on earth. And it's just a very, very lovely song. And that Ryopi piano part is really gorgeous. This is to Marjorie what Margaret is to New Year's Day. But <laughs> the grief is such a theme in this album from the beginning to the end. It's really such a such a candid theme and such a moving song it's especially moving in this song but it's wild how much that family related grief just keeps coming up over and over again through the album i could do without the interlude from her celebrity mega church yeah. pastor um, hard skip hard skip <laughs> that is the hardest skip of the year i was frantically um, trying to skip it today when i was listening to, listening to the album this morning <laughs> I was like, Alexa, no. Yes. <laughs> I don't need the reminder that she attends the same church as Justin Bieber. It's agonizing. Yeah. It's just, I mean, that, especially with that pastor, like he's had pretty public, pretty 
awful public views on homosexuality, on abortion. A lot of the stuff is old, but he hasn't really rectified it at all. And it just really sucks to see that. And it's just not, it's not great. But I think her fans were pretty upset too. She's probably the coolest celebrity who yeah. goes there, right? Like the one you'd be most dip- disappointed it's like with. like her and Chris I mean, Pratt and Justin Bieber. <laughs> There's actually a lot of people who do go to that church. A lot of celebrities go there. Mm. I think for a lot of people hearing this album is the first time they realized that she had that connection and that it's a somewhat, um, I'm sure for uh, many of her listeners, somewhat a disturbing revelation that's, that's specific to this album. It is like very funny that it comes immediately right after American Horror, <laughs> which is just yes. like the, the funniest like, placement of me sing American Horror and then here's my pastor but it's not great i'm not a fan of that interlude especially in an album that is otherwise very touching and moving but even going back to he hit me and it felt like a kiss which she now doesn't sing anymore Mm -hmm. she loves provocation one way or another yeah some of the he hit me and it felt like a kiss like obviously it's very old reference right that's just from her musical canon of referencing sort of these old songs yes but she also put it in her own context yes of course Uh, but yes yeah and i again like there is some of the music because of the way that she was presenting it it was there was a mix of some of it was steeped in irony and some of it wasn't. And that's that's the line with it. But I think, I don't know. I don't know that she even has, it's necessarily a desire to troll. I think she is, I think it's just who she is. The way that she presents herself, her interests in things are very, I don't know, she reminds me of the people I went to high school with in the Midwest. That's so just her vibe generally. And it's almost like she's far removed from the idea of like how you can and can engage with the culture at large and i think is so i know steeped in her own her own world and her own sort of like cloud of things that she forgets that these things have bigger implications because she is so famous and because she is that but maybe that's being too generous and i think sometimes trying to i don't think she's ever been very good at explaining herself outside of the music and even that's opaque like that the question for the culture thing had there was a point to be made about some of that stuff but i think the way that she delivered that point was not great in case anyone's forgotten question for the culture was this uh, open letter that lana posted on instagram in may of 2020 where she made i think some valid points responding to criticism of her but expressed it in a way that led to a lot of ire on the internet. She started out, Now that Doja Cat, Ariana, Camila, Cardi B, Kalani, and Nicki Minaj, and Beyonce have had number ones with songs about being sexy, wearing no clothes, fucking cheating, etc., can I please go back to singing about being embodied, feeling beautiful by being in love, even if the relationship is not perfect, or dancing for money, or whatever I want, without being crucified or saying I'm glamorizing abuse? And then she had like seven question marks. Uh, I won't read the whole thing, but she said, I'm fed up with female writers and alt singers saying I glamorize abuse, when in reality, I'm just a glamorous person singing about the realities of what we are all now seeing are very prevalent, emotionally abusive relationships all around the world. So, you know, this did not get a great reaction. Naming the other artists, especially women of color, did not go over well on the internet, and so perhaps overshadowed any of the genuine and valid points she was making in there. I gotta admit, for me, just Personally, Blue Bannisters and Chemtrails, they were, I don't want to say they were ruined for me, but they came out right soon after a question for the culture. And like, I really feel like that's probably why I never connected with those albums. I think there are ways that she could have discussed her issues with how she's been perceived and like how people encountered music, because that was looking back on the writing about her from her early career is like pretty 
terrible. But yeah, I think it's, it, I think there's a better way for her to address a lot of things, but she's not very good at that at all and has never been. I think your point about explaining is really good in my own, <laughs> in my own complicated encounter with her. And first of all, like spending a couple of days with her, whenever I listen to her albums, that's what it reminds me of because she really does cast a spell, even in person, that is very much like her albums, like she has a vibe. Mm-hmm. But I remember her, bas- <laughs> her basically saying, you know what, I can't really explain this stuff. I can't basically stop making me talk or think logically yeah. a thing. So she's very instinctual. She's very, and some great artists come out of it. I just don't think she's like a she is a political and sociological thinker, but not in a sort of linear way or one that, that it's one that comes out best through the music. You ask her to explain it or she'd sit down and write a, to write an open letter. And it's, it's like consistently a disaster. You know, if it's even the desire to troll, I think she just, I don't know. I don't even know what it is, but I don't know if that desire to troll is really what's motivating her. Even thinking about her reaction to a really brilliant review that Ann Powers wrote of Norman that was very complimentary. And like her reaction to it was just so intense and like visceral and angry. That was just like such a, I was like, what's happening? What are you defending? It's like, this is someone who liked your album. (laughs) That piece was like 80,000 words long. (laughs) Really feel she must have read something in the first few paragraphs that set her off. And then, because it was such a weird thing to get mad about. It's always shocking when brilliant lyricists turn out to be not brilliant verbally in any other way and we're always brian ferry is one of my very favorite lyricists and has been writing brilliant lyrics for 50 years it's funny how he's never once said anything interesting in an interview and he's got very similar sort of lyrical obsessions with lana del rey so i think of her and him as very linked lyricists in a lot of ways and it's like really funny how those sort of similarities of always reading Brian Ferry interviews. And I'm like, this is the guy who wrote Mother of Pearl? That's, it's weird how common that is. I think it's just like having time in an editor, right? It's like you're, they get the time to work on that song and think it through. And they get like the person that they sometimes are working with who is able to edit that for them. And then when they sit down with someone or they like write an open letter on Instagram, it's okay. It's not like A&W, which gets your point across better than the question for the culture. Like A&W, she might as well just release that. (laughs) That's it. That's what she was trying to say. But that the letter was not the effective way to do it. That's very generous to to question for the culture. (laughs) American Horror is so great. What a song. I just, I totally love this song. I, I think, think it honestly is like one of my favorite Lana songs. It might, it's already bumped up to like top five. Yeah, it's one of her best songs. Um, yeah, it's, if it yeah. overtakes it's, it's, the greatest, that will be a really insane day. Honestly, nothing will ever top the greatest. <laughs> nope, that's a song you can't. It's no insult to say she'll never write a song like that one. It's just but American Horns sure is it's close. A, American Horn that's that's way up there. It's, yeah, it's. I love how it's so expansive and so personal and so emotional and so funny at every moment. It's just really a tour de force. Yeah, it's a fantastic breakup song. It's a fantastic song about perceptions. Mm-hmm. It's also a really fascinating feminist statement. Amazing song and amazing music. And it's the the counterpoint to Venice Bitch, right? Where it's like that the sort of like second half kind of psychedelic freak out of that and this kind of takes it even a step further but it's funny to hear apparently the venice bitch that we hear at the end of taco truck on the last track was originally what she wanted it to be but the way that we hear it on this album was what she originally intended for 
Norman fucking Rockwell version. I also really love the, your mom called, I told her you're fucking up big time. It's amazing. <laughs> Absolute favorite lyric. And the track Kintsugi obviously refers to Leonard Cohen. To let it break a little more. Cause they say that's what it's for. That's how the light shines in. I really like that one. Rob, what did you make of that one? Yes, I love this. As you pointed out, very Leonard Cohen-y, that there's a crack in everything that's how the light gets in that could be Leonard Cohen inventing Lana Del Rey in one lyric right there. Your perfect offering There is a crack, a crack in everything That's how the light gets in Fantastic song. The Paris, Texas I really love. It's everything the And that one's shot up. That, that's been one I've been like returning to a lot over the list. You can go back to that one. I haven't really observed that one. I just, I really love, I don't know, just the way it sounds. It's kind of like a little creepy and like a little witchy. That and Margaret being two sides of the same coin, like where they're those references together is just really yeah. stunning how that's connected. I love Candy Necklace a lot. I love those little threads that she's building in this between this album and also between her other albums. That sort of coquettish delivery that she did on a lot of Born to Die tracks, bringing that back for this album, which she really hasn't done in especially the last three albums. I really love that little reference. Yeah, I was glad you mentioned that this has, for the first time in a long time, that there were some Born to Die vibes on this album. Mm -hmm. Even on Pepper, a little bit of a return for some of that hip-hop influence stuff. Even thinking about how she's singing about certain subject matters on this album versus Born to Die. Obviously, both have moments of talking about toxic relationships. And that's the crux of Born to Die is a lot of this sort of <laughs> romanticizing the idea of a guy who loves a crazy girl. There's so many lines about like, he loves his girls insane. Stuff like that is just all over it. And these like really bad boyfriends and this kind of fantasizing and romanticizing the historical toxic romances and even just the way that she sings about them on this album in terms of like her own sexual development and what she's things that she thought of as a child what's the song fingertips i think is the one I ran through a time when i felt you were doing where she talks a lot about that romanticization of wanting to just be in love and wanting to thinking that she'd be 16 and have a baby or things like that and being really judged by her family for being a romantic and dating as a kid and feeling really shamed for it. I think that digging deeper into the psychological development behind a lot of that for her is a really big part of this that kind of makes a lot of the Born to Die musical references and vocal references on here make even more sense. On a broader note, Rob, it's really funny. On her subreddit, someone posted, new fan, what are her best up-tempo tracks? <laughs> and there's like three, maybe. And so they, they would hate to break it to you, but not a ton of those. But here's the ones. What precedent is there for artists who've settled so hard into sort of a particular tempo without breaking it? Because I think in a way, that's one of the most impressive things about her. Yeah, why not say James Brown? Like some artists find a rhythm that is them. Leonard Cohen is another great example, somebody who just works best at this sort of ruminative tempo. And that might be where she's coming from. 
But Brittany, how do you look back at Born to Die now? That album still holds up so well for me. I love that album. And I think that there is a lot of so much unfair kind of criticism of her as a as an artist as a figure as the idea of like her kind of creating this character and creating like diving deep into who this like mythical lana del rey image and that album is still just like really excellent and video games is absolutely stunning it's insane that song blew up the way it did listening to it now it just feels so wild and like watching the video like it's just surreal and again really inspired so much aesthetic movements for in fashion and in culture since then and i just i really love that album i have a soft spot for those especially her first two albums especially i feel like they also they came out when i was in college like it felt like it was very like they soundtracked a few years of my life and were really important to me so those are those still really hold up i think listening back the things that felt incomplete on that album still do to a certain extent which is i felt like some of the production was a little generic and it didn't feel totally connected to it. And I also think there's a gulf between the best songs and some of the others, which you can kind of feel. Summertime Sadness. As you mentioned, Diet Mountain Dew and video games and the title track, there's great ones and maybe not so great ones, but I think it does sound because I now am so deeply bought into her aesthetic that it does deeply impress how already established it was and my quibbles with the production no longer bother me quite as much. It's my least favorite of her records. I think she got a lot better with Ultraviolence. I think if Ultraviolence is really the debut album from a brilliant singer, I mean, her vocals, it's a completely different album vocally and lyrically and musically. I think of Ultraviolence as the debut of the great artist that we know and love. Well, let's jump to that one, because that one was the one I was stunned by Ultraviolence. And Rob, it's funny, when we put it, I know you want to, if you want to consider Ultraviolence the debut, this doesn't quite work. But when we were talking about Left Turn albums, actually Ultraviolence in some ways belongs on it, because it it was such a, a stunning musical turn. And really, in retrospect, I think now seems like um, the best thing that Dan Auerbach has ever been involved in, <laughs> actually. As much as, uh, no, no disrespect to the best of the Black Keys. Um, I think of Ultraviolence as the arrival of a major artist, but it's certainly comparable to take off second albums where I think of Ultraviolence as the arrival of the major artist that we know and love and admire today. And I think Born to Die, I think of as an album that is thought of now, like mostly because it was like a prelude to her massive arrival with Ultraviolence and also with Honeymoon, which are both just stunning albums. One of my favorite moments on this album in Ocean Boulevard is when she says, did you know that there's a girl who sings Hotel California? And I'm like, yeah, because I've heard Ultraviolence. (laughs) I've heard your song Pretty When You Cry, which is the exact same song as Hotel California now, isn't it? And I, to me, like, Ultraviolence is such a massive achievement. I thought for years, like, that was always going to be her best album. And then she dropped Norman, and it was like, oh, okay, it's now, like, a distant second. But with Ultraviolence and Honeymoon, she set the bar so high that really nothing she will do the rest of her career will come as a total shock because of just how much she achieved as a singer and as a lyricist and as an all-around musical mind. Yeah. The extent to which her label 
did not want her to release Ultraviolence. It was like their worst nightmare that this promising artist, from their perspective, would turn around and do a moody noir rock album with Dan Auerbach. I, they could not have imagined anything worse. It proved instantly proved that all of the really sexist and bizarre criticism that people have now, a lot of people have now forgotten that Britney alluded to surrounding the first album and surrounding her image was totally false. Yeah. If, if she was this manufactured label thing, which was that the whole thing was she was, she's quote unquote fake indie. There's, there was all this insanity around that time. She would not have released an album like Ultraviolence. So it was just an instant proving of herself. Brittany, you were going to say something? I just want to give a shout out to Born to Die Paradise Ed- Edition, which is the yes. fame monster to in her <laughs> yes. career, which I think is also a really excellent EP and has Ride on it, which I think is both the best Lana video and also the best. That's in like, a, that's a top five song. That's a song that will never move from my top five of Lana songs. <laughs> I was born to be the other woman. I belonged to no one. Just because it just, it really, I think something like that really set a, a tone and it was a weirdly big pop moment in a way that it probably shouldn't have been even at that time. It just felt it's so weird that, that song and that video became as big as they did. Lana was like a very Tumblr famous, very, she'd blown up on YouTube. That's a big part, blown up on YouTube in the sense of video games being an, a sort of viral moment on there. But thinking of all those songs like that, she created this cult-like fandom immediately who were digging up all these unreleased songs by her that people are still obsessed with. She never actually ended up releasing, but a lot of them, a few of them came out on Paradise Edition, and those are just like really excellent and kind of some of her funniest lyrics and weirdest moments. Yeah, incredibly autobiographical and revealing. Some of her most explicitly revealing stuff about her life is on those unreleased tracks. And I think not to constantly reference my ancient interview with her, but it really made a very big impression on me. One of the things that bummed her out the most is I knew all those songs were at, was asking her questions about her life based on those songs, which she was just <laughs> like, the problem is, is, is that they were too revealing, I think is why a lot of them, a lot of them didn't come out. I don't know anyone who isn't constantly running low on time. You've got to juggle work and the rest of life. Sometimes you just need groceries or drinks or whatever else, and there's zero time to head out and go shopping. There's one way around that. And that's DashPass from DoorDash. I'm definitely a DoorDash customer. And there's always something a little magical about your groceries popping up at your door. And when you want more from delivery, you can get it with DashPass by DoorDash. With DashPass, you get $0 delivery fees and lower service fees on eligible orders, which makes it incredibly easy to save on restaurants, groceries, retail items, and all your local favorites that deliver on DoorDash. And get this, DashPass pays for itself in only two orders on average, so it's worth it right away. And when you sign up, you get special access to exclusive promotions and member-only menu items, all for only $9.99 a month. Get more from delivery for less. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. Use code MUSICNOW24 and get 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and more. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. That's 50% off, up to a $10 value, when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass with code MUSICNOW24. Again, MUSICNOW24. Subject to change. Terms apply. Today, hip-hop dominates pop culture, but it wasn't always like that. And to tell the story of how that changed, I want to take you back to a very special year in rap. 
88. It was too much good music. The world was on fire. fire yeah. I'm Will Smith. This is Class of 88, my new podcast about the moments, albums, and artists that inspired a sonic revolution and secured 1988 as one of hip-hop's most important years. We'll talk to the people who were there. And most of all, we'll bring you some amazing stories. You know what my biggest memory from that tour is? It was your birthday. Yes, and you brought me to Sade. Life-size cardboard cutout. <laughs> this is Class of 88, the story of a year that changed hip-hop. Follow Class of 88 on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers, offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. But... Moving on in her discography, so Honeymoon 2015. Yeah, that's a phenomenal album. That's where she built on the the vocal breakthroughs of Ultraviolence. And Ultraviolence and Honeymoon, in addition to everything they are, that's her voice. That's where she really arrived as a singer and what a great singer she is. And it's, yeah, it's very different from singing. She was really still learning to do on Board to Die. And her voice is so assured in Ultraviolence and Honeymoon. And the songs on Honeymoon, which are so also so bleak and so funny, and there's so much emotional complexity in her vocals on that album. I, yeah. I'm always drawn back to Salvatore. What a phenomenal song that is on just so many levels. But there's a lot of great songs like that. Freak on that album is like totally phenomenal. on every album having at least one song title that is so incredibly iconically unique to the artist on this one (laughs) the summertime sadness and high by the beach on this one is just like (laughs) love that song (laughs) and then she of course covered don't let me be misunderstood one of a million great covers of that song and chosen she could cover that she could include that as the final track on every album actually (laughs) just to keep reminding us The, the honeymoon song that for me connects so much closest to the newest album is Terrence Loves You mm-hmm. is such a phenomenal song. Soul, 
such a phenomenally sad song, so much grief in that song. And that's the song that I find that the new album is bringing me back to. Ocean Boulevard, there's so much of that kind of grief that goes back to Terrence Loves You, a very sort of uh, specific song about types of grief that are just very overwhelming. And that's to me, like that song is almost like the dry run for what she's doing on a full album level on this album. Yeah. Obvious Bowie references in there. I think one of my favorite things about her is the way she's always in conversation with rock and roll past. Her references are very top notch throughout her discography and very on on brand, <laughs> like with each one. It's, oh, yes. Which takes us to 2017's Lust for Life. I love this album. I feel like a lot of people don't like Lust for Life. I feel like it's not talked about a lot. I feel like a lot of fans also weren't sure how to feel about it at first. I return to this album very often, and it's not just because of the Stevie Nicks, not just because of the Stevie <laughs> Nicks feature. I promise, like I actually really do enjoy this album. It's her only real, like, top forty coup moment in her career, and even then, it's still like too weird to be top forty. But it's probably the only album where she's uh, trying to make a hit. Yeah, and I think it's also because it came at she did whatever she wanted. For between Born to Die and this, she was really just in a universe all her own. But I just, I don't know, the songs kind of, they really work. It's just, I don't know, it's just, I love this entire album. The features are really great. I think the ASAP Rocky songs are fantastic. The Sean Ono Lennon song, Love, also very underrated. Great single. No one. <laughs> It's just, I really like this album and people, I don't think, I don't think people really got onto it. I think it's a very good album. Yes. This is one that I thought of as dropping off from, from the heights of ultraviolence and honeymoon. So I would love a full on like Britney making me a convert to this album. I don't know what it is. I think especially the song love, it's just like maybe her most optimistic song she's ever released. Mm. It's just such a beautiful pop moment from her. And it's still so Lana. Like that's the thing with this album is she is trying. This is her like her. What's that? That Jewel song intuition Intuition? or something. This is her intuition. Oh my God. The (laughs) reference. It's you don't lose Lana at all. It's still, there's still a song called Coachella Woodstock in my mind. That's what? (laughs) For her to have a song called Summer Bummer after Summertime Sadness is like if Bob Dylan had like the the times are different or something. There's something really funny about that. And she makes her big pop album. There's a song called Heroin on it. It's just it's I might pick heroin as the bottom of her songwriting barrel. After she's done so many songs with really complex metaphors of addiction, she's look, do I have to spell reminds me of like when Taylor did a song called Dress. It's fine. Look. Are you not noticing I'm mentioning dresses in every single song? Fine. Here's a song called Dress. It's worth talking about her and The Weeknd because, like I said, Lana sees her closest male analog as an artist to be Father John Misty, at least in the modern era. The Weeknd, on the other hand, has said that he feels that he and Lana are parallels of each other and that he's always basically singing about someone like Lana and Lana is always singing about someone like him. Yeah. Which is... Interesting, and I think think it's a little disturbing. Yeah, it's a brilliant point. (laughs) On a dominant, submissive axis, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty much the entire vibe of it. But also, Stargirl interlude should have been at least four minutes longer, at minimum. 
It is pretty funny to listen to Lana Del Rey's catalog and then just come out and be like, I'm the guy she's singing about. I'm the kind of guy she's singing about when she's singing about the worst person on earth consistently is amazing. Characters that they both encompass and Lana, I feel like Lana has moved away from the characters. This is probably the last album where we get the character of Lana Del Rey versus it becomes like Lana Del Rey, the, the who she is on the day to day. But the character of Lana Del Rey, that the weekends, the character that he's built, there are like that is exactly who they're singing about. You think about the way that she talks about the glamour of the toxicity. And again, thinking about how she sings about it on Ocean Boulevard, she's trying to move away from it. She doesn't want that. She's she doesn't want to feel like a side piece at 33. That's like what she's singing about. And The Weeknd embodies that on so much of his songs because he is also fitting into a character. I don't know. Maybe he's probably also a bad boyfriend. But it's really interesting when you look at the born to ultraviolence transition and then you look at the lust for life to Norman fucking Rockwell transition is similar in that whatever commercial elements or wannabe commercial elements there were of lust for life, it, she then goes in the other direction and makes her kind of sprawling, totally idiosyncratic masterpiece. Yeah. With, of course, with Norman fucking Rockwell. Going back to the entire discography, single one of those albums lit up to Norman, right? Every single album, there's a piece of that in what Norman would become. And I think there's so much confidence exuding from Norman fucking Rockwell that just comes across such a strong lyrical album from start to finish. Some of the best lines in her entire catalog. And again, it doesn't feel like it's a totally different career than anything we've heard in the previous albums, but it's just absolutely brilliant. Vocally, lyrically. The songs, she she's really she's really sinking into these characters and she knows all the different characters she's singing about, both the characters who are narrating the songs and also the other characters that they're singing about. Reminds me a lot of Randy Newman and Joni Mitchell, Harry Nilsson, like a lot of mm-hmm. the sort of figures that she toys with their imagery and mythology in other songs. This is a song where she's really rising to their sort of emotional level. It's very much the great Leonard Cohen Hollywood album that Leonard Cohen never made. Like there's so much going on in this album in terms of if honestly you could pick any minute of the greatest which is like a five or six minute song. Just pick any minute of that song and there's entire careers worth of brilliant songwriting going on yeah. there. Something I wrote about the greatest at the time is that she was trying to take every artist's great California album and put it into mm. one song. And that really is like the whole sort of everybody in the seventies with their songs about watching California fall into the ocean, which songwriters in the seventies were obsessed with. I guess people forgot about that, but that's something that she goes back to over and over again in this album. There's just so much going on in these songs emotionally. It's weird that this yeah. is one of the most acclaimed albums of recent years, and yet it still seems so totally underrated because there's just so much brilliant on this album that we're going to be unpacking for years. You can discover it in five years and it will have as much or as little to do with 2028 as it did with 2019. Yeah. It's kind of, it's just, I, I it's incredible. I think it's a very 2019 album. I think it fits in with a lot of stuff in pop culture, certainly in music with this, the other Taylor made Lover and Harry made Fine Line. This was a year when people were really obsessed with with LA the, canon, yeah. the end of the end of a sort of unannounced decade, which the 20 teens were. 
And again, with <laughs> the Tarantino movie that year, Once Upon a yeah. Time in Hollywood, there's a lot of really elegiac, like pop culture stuff, like happening in, in that year. And this seems like it was really in the thick of it. This was really the 2019 was really one of the great years for pop music in, in, I, in my opinion, in history. And uh, I think this is one of the absolute monuments of it. Yeah, also like very much the big comebacks of the nostalgia for Joni Mitchell for kind of rumors era Fleetwood Mac. I think totally. that was happening. And again, those are artists that Lana's referenced throughout her career and has very explicitly shouted out and just her once again being ahead of the curve in a lot of ways. But this was that was definitely a year where that was really starting to happen. I think obviously in the last couple of years, it's become such a big part of pop culture is the comeback of both those artists for younger audiences, for millennial and Gen Z listeners. How are we to see the two albums in between as I think there's a danger of placing them as footnotes in a way or addendums to Norman fucking Rockwell. But Brittany, you said you're appreciating them more and more. Yeah, I think even now I'm like looking at Chemtrails and I've been listening to that for free cover, a Joni cover that Lana did with Stella Day and Wise Blood. I've been listening to that a ton. real good for free. These are like her sort of Midwestern albums, I think, of. There's a lot. It feels like very road trips well, through. Probably because of her boyfriend, right? Yeah, <laughs> because of the, the end of that relationship. There's a lot of references to Middle America. It seems that these are like road trip albums almost. They're quieter in terms of a lot of her music. But Blue Banister is like the title track of that one. I mean, just like a real heartbreaker of a song. She was swimming with Nikki Lay. She said, most men don't want a woman with a legacy. It's our vein. She said, you. This idea of this guy promised to paint her banisters blue and ended up, she ended up calling up her girlfriends to do it for her instead. But yeah, I feel like, again, like we talked about earlier, like it just was weird to, after the question for the culture thing, those are a little tarnished for a minute. And I think returning to those albums, I'm like, okay, those were really great songwriting moments for her. And again, we'll also have a, their own renaissance in the Lana Del Rey fandom in coming years. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, especially it does get into a Miley thing where the controversies could make it hard to hear the music at the time. And I do love the idea of the Midwest thing because it it did feel a little bit like we were seeing Red State Lana for that period, maybe. And I will say there is, just for the record, there is no such thing as Chemtrails. Chemtrails is a conspiracy theory. (laughs) But also a very Lana Del Rey album title. (laughs) I know. As a good coastal elitist, I find it deeply irritating so that she did her thing of being a little irritating. Put the thing in your album title that isn't real, that isn't a thing. (laughs) I will say that Prince believed in Chemtrails. He spent about <laughs> 10 minutes talking to me about chemtrails, which made me want to die just a little bit. Um, <laughs> but yes, yeah, it's Lana. She's clearly a work in progress. This is her best album in a while. It's it, Thanks to Britney, I'll definitely be going back and checking the last couple albums, which didn't do much for me. But it certainly seems like her, her biggest and boldest album since Norman. And there's just so much, so much in this album where she blends the sort of mythology that she's so fond of with the sort of intimate emotional content that she's also so fond of. For me, one of the most moving moments is when she sings about the Harry Nilsson song, mm-hmm. Don't Forget Me, which is it's a deep cut. Harry Nilsson has a song, his voice breaks it to a fire. It's wild that she sings about this and sings about his vocals specifically at the two minute and five second mark with the absolute confidence that everybody will know instantly what she's talking about. Don't forget me, 
but it's it's a brilliant sort of hyperconfidence bordering on megalomania that totally like sums up the achievement of this album for me. And I also have to give Lana serious credit because as Brittany said, that theme of there is a crack in everything and that's how the light shines in, taken from Leonard Cohen, is echoed a few places in the album. And I hadn't thought until just now that the crack in Harry Nielsen's voice is another example of that. So kind of, uh, you know, insert mind-blown emoji because that's pretty impressive from Lana there. And of course, that is a brilliant Harry Nilsson song about, among many other things, it's about n- not having your friends anymore after you were young and beautiful in the early, early 70s and partying with John Lennon in the mid-70s. And then everybody goes on with their lives and leaves you behind in L.A. And that sort of desperation in Harry Nilsson's voice, it's really a perfect touchstone for this album. So I think it's a really exciting moment for her as an artist and an exciting moment to be a fan of hers. I thought that was an incredible moment in that song. I thought of you, Rob, for some reason when she sang that. It was, it was a very Rob kind of reference. <laughs> and and it, amazing that it's a, you know from a song and an album produced by John Lennon when she collaborated with John Lennon's son. There's all sorts of levels there. Again, the metatextual stuff can, can that, drive the, you nuts. The John Lennon she's most obsessed with is the mid-70s lost weekend, like drunk in <laughs> LA, ruining his life. John Lennon, like, that is so perfect. Just like the David Bowie she's obsessed with is the mid-70s cracked actor. David Bowie spends years in L.A. and can't remember anything about it for the rest of his life. Like that era, Diamond Dogs era, Station to Station era Bowie, that that's her Bowie. I love how everything is so filtered through this California fantasy for her in such a yeah. artistically inspiring way. I actually have a good song topic for her. She could write a great song about May Pang. Couldn't she? She just, could write the ultimate May Pang song. It would be really amazing. She could get May Pang to sing on it. That would be absolutely phenomenal. I'm not familiar that. with her vocal talents, but it could be just called Brandy Alexander's Kotex on Forehead. She could do a whole concept album about the Lost Weekend, John Lennon. And with that, Robin Brittany, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, this is so fun. And that's our show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Movies, TV shows, books, podcasts, and more. It's what women binge with Melissa Joan Hart and her friend Amanda Lee. We have Lauren Bosworth with us. Yay! The Hills. So what is like your number one question from fans? The primary question I still get asked was, what, is it real? (laughs) (laughs) In 2024, to me, is a surprising question to get because I feel like everybody has been through the reality TV gauntlet at this point. What women binge wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen.